Hello and welcome to Byline Radio with me, Adrian Goldberg. Today, the royals and reparations. Prince William, second in line to the throne, and his wife Kate Middleton, aka the Duchess of Cambridge, are just arriving back in the UK after a week-long Caribbean tour to mark the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. On the Jamaica leg of the trip, the Prince described his profound sorrow for the slave trade, but shops stopped short of a formal apology. And there was no mention of reparations or compensation for the wrong done to millions of Africans who were enslaved and shipped off to work in sugar and tobacco plantations. Why ever not? Britain was propped up for decades by the slave trade, which helped to power the Industrial Revolution from which we, as a nation, still benefit today. There's also the question of the ideology which underpins slavery, the belief that some races are superior to others, which, as I say, underpins our society even now and plays out in the discrimination which weighs heavily against black people in terms of prison sentences, poor health outcomes and the Windrush scandal, for example. In the years after slavery was abolished, the UK government paid £20 million in compensation to those who were no longer permitted to own their fellow human beings. The slavers, the people who were enslaved, received not a penny. Now, the royal family might not want to address this issue directly, but here at Byline Radio, we certainly aren't afraid to. Is it time to pay reparations? And if so, how much? How should it be done, given that the people who were enslaved and their direct descendants have now died? I'm going to be joined shortly by Ava Vidal, comedian, journalist, activist, but I'd welcome your contributions too. If you're listening live on Byline Radio, you'll need to use your phone. You'll see a microphone icon in the bottom left hand of your screen. Just tap that to request access. And if you've got something sensible to contribute, uh, a comment to make or a question to ask, we'll be delighted wherever you're listening around the world to join our conversation. And before we get cracking, just a reminder that Byline Radio comes from the Byline Times and we are funded by ordinary people like you. That allows us to report without fear or favour. So to support us, please take out a subscription to the Byline Times. You'll get a great monthly newspaper, plus you'll be supporting Byline Radio, the Byline Times podcast, where you might be enjoying this show on Listen Again, and our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's where you'll find details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Let's welcome now Ava Vidal, who, as I say, is a comedian, very funny one, a journalist, an activist. Ava, hello. Welcome to Byline Radio. Hi, how are you? Yeah, great to speak to you, Ava. And this is such a difficult issue for me as as a white man to address, really. But I'll throw something into this, Ava. My father was a victim of Nazi persecution, in Germany and apart from his brother all of his family were killed by the Nazis in the years afterwards it took a little bit of haggling and a bit of bargaining but in the years afterwards the direct descendants of those who were victims of the Nazi death camps and victims of the Holocaust were paid compensation by Germany and the amounts of money were not life-changing but symbolically and as a as a way of somehow repairing the damage done to the soul of germany by the holocaust it made a huge difference i believe and i would argue that it's time for britain to address its past to confront the reality of the slave trade and reparations would be one way 
of doing that. What do you think? I totally agree. I mean, I think it has to be done, as you said in your introduction. The legacy of slavery is still going on today. You can still see the effects all over the world from it. Um, the place with the highest descendant of slaves uh, living at the moment is Brazil. Look how black people live in Brazil. Um, you know, it's outrageous. Also in America, I mean, the police force in America was actually originally um, put in place to catch runaway slaves. I mean, it's just kind of trans transformed over the years, but they still disproportionately affect black people in America. They still um, have, you know, the police, the prison, the school to prison pipelines. I mean, there's so much damage that has done from slavery, even the damage amongst ourselves. I mean, over the past few days, I've been talking a lot about skin bleaching. I mean, um, even within ourselves, the colorism is a direct result of racism, which is a direct result of uh, slave trade and colonialism. You have to. I mean, the countries basically are poorer for it. Haiti is still paying today. The out it's outrageous that they compensated former slave owners and they didn't compensate um, the people who actually did the work. I mean, that was only paid off in 2015, which means not only have we not got compensation, but black people in Britain were paying for the compensation that was given to the people who owned their ancestors. It is outrageous. It's disrespectful. Um, as you said, everybody says um, they can always address other atrocities in the world. I mean, we can see the disparity at the moment with how Ukraine is being treated compared to how when black and brown people have bombs dropped on them. In fact, Yemen is... England, with one hand, dropping bombs on, uh, on Yemen, and on the other hand, condemning it being done in Ukraine. I mean, what is being done to black people, um, descendants of slaves, is outrageous. And anti-blackness, sort of, in, even in other communities, when they took slavery away and they did indentured servants. I mean, it's such a mess. One of the most damaging effects, it seems to me, of slavery, and you've hinted at this, Ava, is the the way in which black people have internalised the negative view of them. And I'm, because I'm using black people as a very loose and broad term, and I hope you'll forgive me for that, because it does encompass a, a huge number of people and cultures. But you mentioned colorism and this idea that black people might grade themselves or others according to how black or how light-skinned they are. And this sense in which slavery psychologically has infected the way black people see themselves and other black people. I, f I find that fascinating and profoundly disturbing at the same time. I mean, it is one of the aspects, and I really don't want to go off um, off topic too much. I mean, I just brought that in as something. I really think we should be focusing on, um, because if we distract and derail this conversation and concentrate on that, I mean, I think it's going to be too much of a distraction. It's, it's one of the aspects. The mental slavery is one of the aspects of it. But I think we should really, you know, obviously, if you're going to be treating people like that, um, they are going to start feeling about themselves like that. That is one of the, one of the you know, I think you find in Israel, I used to go out with an Israeli guy as well, and there is a uh, attitude towards Holocaust survivors that I was surprised to find there. 
you know, a lot of people were angry and felt that they were weak people, all of that kind of stuff. When you commit such atrocities against people, the mental slavery that they suffer, that you know, the mental effects are terrible. But like I said, I think we should more stick to the royals and the reparations because I don't want it to be a case of people thinking, oh, well, you know, it's our, our own fault. Yeah, no, no, I'd, yeah. I'd, 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 take, I'd take that point. In terms of the, royal, uh, the royals, uh, Kate and William and their visit to the Caribbean, it, it, it seemed to me quite astonishing that they had these blind spot to the echoes of the UK's colonial past. I don't know that they had a blind spot. I think they just are what they are. That is how they feel. That is how they chose to present themselves. Um, I think people have got the feeling because they are younger um, that they've got, you know, you always hear this, oh, racism's dying out. Oh, it's much better with the younger people. It is not. It really isn't. So I think they just showed themselves for what they are because there's absolutely, if they had any clue, that's how they feel. They they wanted to be dressed in white. They wanted to be waving. They wanted to be, you know, touching black people behind the fence. That's what they are. And I think we have to see that this royal family is not going to get any better. I'm personally um, would rather that we, we, you know, do away with it, to be honest. It's, it's very expensive. <laughs> I mean, I don't see how we can continue to keep justifying this when, you know, at the end of this month, people are going to have to really choose between rent, heating and eating. And this is so much money that we pour into it. It's obvious that the people uh, in the Caribbean do not want them there. We've, we've just had enough. I'm of Caribbean descent. We're not interested. And people seem to think that we benefit greatly from being part of the Commonwealth. I mean, I'm half, my mum's from Barbados. I'm half Bajan. I'm half Dominican. And I was, I went to Dominica after the, uh, that's part of the Commonwealth. And I went down with like four suitcases after Hurricane Maria. And the lack of help was, was just disgraceful. It really was. So there's no benefit to us. So I think we do need to become republics and we do need to get compensation. How would that compensation be paid, Ava? Because obviously the people who were enslaved and their direct descendants have passed away now. How could we manage to reparate those who are descendants of slavery in a way that was fair and equitable and actually benefited them? In the exact same way they did it with Israel. I mean, you can pour money into the countries, you can set up, um, you know, you can improve the infrastructure, you can improve the education, you can pour money into those communities, in, into black communities, black projects. Um, you know, there, there, there's just no way, I mean, that you sh black people should have to live the way that they live. They should be going to Brazil, they should be going to those black areas, they should be building them up. Um, I, sorry, I can't remember. I think they're called favelas. Some might correct me. Favelas, the slums, basically, is where they live. Go into. Oh, South sorry, the, the the favelas, the favelas in Brazil. That's yeah. right. Yeah. They yeah. can improve those things. They can make sure those children get an education. They can. They can. Uh, you know, they talk about defunding the police. Take that money away. Put it into community projects. So there's no need for that. So that our communities are no longer criminalised and no longer over policed. You can put money into, if you want to do it here, to training, but proper, proper training um, to to uh, organisations that blatantly discriminate against black people. I'm not saying it's going to 
be easy. It will take time because, as I said, the whole, you know, mental effect of it still goes on. The British media were taken aback, it seemed to me, by the level of hostility, particularly in Jamaica, where there, there was quite a, a, a difficult re response for Kate and William to deal with, and there were protests, you know, quite loud protests and so on. Uh, you've said this is how they are, how Kate and William are, how the royal family are, but do you think they would would have genuinely been surprised by that? Were you surprised by the level of hostility towards them? No, not at all. Look at the way this country treats Jamaican people. It's outrageous. I mean, I'm like I said, I'm of Caribbean descent. I'm not of Jamaican descent. And, you know, I can see Jamaican people have to have a visa to come here. They criminalise that whole community, talking about yardy gangs. I remember being out, you know, in the 90s and what they were talking about, how they were presenting Jamaican people to the world. I mentioned him before. I'll mention him again. Stafford Scott um, did that whole, um, uh, gosh, sorry, exhibition, War in the Babylon. And you would see uh, what police said about Jamaican people are unruly. They've got no manners. They can't be tamed. They can't be controlled. And let's not also forget that how many slave rebellions that Jamaica actually had. The Maroons came from Jamaica. They were people who just went and lived up in the mountains and just freed themselves from slavery. And in the end, they couldn't even be bothered with them. They had to just leave it. They had to make a deal with them because they were not having it. So Jamaican, have, Jamaican people have a very, very strong history. And for a small island in the Caribbean, they have a lot of influence. But if you had people had been paying attention to the way that Jamaicans are treated, I mean, for goodness sake, Britain delayed deporting a plane full of Jamaicans until after the visit was over. Jamaican people are not stupid. They can see what's going on. So, no, there's absolutely no way that I was surprised at all. There's a story in my part of the world in Birmingham about a guy from Jamaica who's lived in Birmingham for 20 years who has cancer and is now facing deportation to Jamaica as well. There's quite a, I'm pleased to say, quite a strong local campaign to try and ensure that the guy can stay here and get the treatment he needs. But I suppose it just underlines the fact that the way in which Britain treats black people as treated people who are now in Jamaica, people of African descent. Of course, things have changed. We don't enslave people in the way that we used to. But I, I think it, it, these kind of actions betray a way of thinking by too many in positions of power. Locking up black people, um, you know, like I said, over-policing is a kind of form of modern-day slavery. I mean, I used to work in, in a prison. I used to work in Pentonville. And you will have all these guys sitting in in the prison. And I remember one uh, airplane company, I, I'm not even going to name because he's quite litigious, but I remember sitting, what like having to supervise the inmate, making those little bags that we get on the, new, on the airplane. You know, the ones that have got your earphones, a pair of socks, all those kind of things. Yeah. So big, big business do have contracts with prisoners to make these things or to, do, you know, and they don't pay them proper wages. They get paid something like £2 something a week. What is that if that's not slavery? 
My name is Adrian Goldberg. You're listening to Byline Radio. My guest today is Ava Vidal. Ava is a comedian, journalist, activist. I'm here to listen and to learn. Often when you hear the radio, the presenter is a bit of a a know-it-all, somebody who's telling you what to think or somebody who's in control, who's in charge. Well, I come to you with on this broadcast with due humility. Uh, I've seen the reaction to the royals, to William and Kate in the Caribbean, particularly in Jamaica. So I'm just asking the question that they didn't really address, although William did announced that he was profoundly sad, his profound sorrow for the slave trade. He didn't address the question of reparation. And and, and that's what I'm asking tonight. Is it time for Britain and other Western countries to pay reparations for the slave trade? And, and if so, how should that be done? If you want to join in, you can only do that if you're listening live on Byline Radio and if you're listening via the phone. I don't think you could do it on your laptop or your PC, sadly. So if you're listening via the phone, in the bottom left hand of your corner, there's a little microphone. Tap on that, request access, and if you've got something sensible to say, we will let you on. I know that Alex Renton is listening to us. Alex has written a great book about his own family's history of involvement in the slave trade. It'd be great to get you on, Alex, as well, if you're listening on the phone. Just uh, make a request on the microphone in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen and we'll get you on as well. I'm also conscious Ava can't be with us for too long because it's a, a school night and she's got kids. But I want to bring in uh, Let's Reset and Remain, I think your name is. Uh, I don't know if that's your real name, uh, is joining us. Hello. You all right? Hi. How are you? No, I just want to very, very quickly um, address reparations. Mm. Um, I know that um, uh, what Jamaica, and I'm Jamaican born, I don't live in Jamaica, I live in America, but um, what Jamaica was um, asking for and has been asking for, number one, is an acknowledgement, an, an apology. And I know that uh, William did say uh, that he had sorrow, but it's important, um, just as with um, the those who survived the Holocaust and also in memory of those who didn't, uh, there was acknowledgement by Germany as well as reparations in essence. In terms of reparations um, uh, that um, um, vis-a-vis the royal family, uh, I think that uh, there are multiple uh, uh, approaches that can be made, um, Commonwealth-wide. We know that um, at the time when uh, slaveholders uh, were going to lose their quote-unquote property, that monies were borrowed that only were uh, finally repaid in 2015. So um, some or all of the descendants of slaves living in the UK and certainly in England um, were responsible for paying a part of that bill. That seems a little egregious, but governments can find ways in which they can structure reparations that are targeted to the community. I just quick example here in America, you know, when we had COVID, um, instead of the usual thing that government usually does where big corporations and big entities get monies that are targeted to sort of drip down to, I guess, the common man, what the government did this time um, started under Donald Trump and certainly was carried out under Joe Biden is they went they, they went to governmental organizations and only targeted particularly not just exclusively but certain monies were targeted for certain communities and they they reasonably lowered the bar 
to entry. So governments can structure things in in, in that way. Um, they can structure, uh, uh, you, you know, through education, monies specifically to certain groups. They do it with the Indian tribes um, for education. And if people don't want education, you might get a lump sum to start you off with a home or or what have you. But you can structure it in a way that you simply can show that you are a descendant, and you can and monies can be borrowed. We we do that for wars all the time. So I think it's disingenuous when people say, well, you know, we can't afford that and how are we going to do that? Uh, because it's been done before and uh, 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 groups have benefited. And that's, I really wanted to just insert that um, and not interrupt your conversation. Um, this no, is listen, the, 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 you're not interrupting it. You're adding to it and joining joining in with it is brilliant. Thank you. I appreciate that. And Thank you. The, the point that you've made about Britain paying off its last slave debts, if I can use that term, in 2015 has been fact-checked by numerous sources, including in the United States, and has been found to be true. So uh, I think slavery was abolished in 1807, or the, the first act to abolish slavery was in 1807. In 1837, the United Kingdom passed an act of parliament which said that those who were losing out or had lost out as a result of the abolition of the slave trade would receive compensation so in in the money terms at the time it was something like 20 million pounds so we can only i can only guess at how much that would be worth today when I mean, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds in today's money and the uk government converted that money in, it, that debt into long-term bonds the last of which was paid off just seven years ago whilst the people who were enslaved and their descendants received not a bean is incredible. It doesn't even need to be fact-checked. The Home Office put a tweet out and were like, yay, we've paid it off. And people went, excuse me? And then they deleted it after about an hour. But quite a few people, <laughs> you know, the fact they were even boasting about it, like it was supposed to be a good thing, just shows that, the, you know, the lack of respect, you know, around the subject. And don't forget, like, we've been ruled by people who have directly benefited from slavery. David Cameron, I mean, all these Eton boys who come from old money, that's where the money comes from. And that is probably why we're having such a problem getting them to do anything about it. I mean, when Benedict Cumberbatch, and they were massive slave owners in Barbados, if you look at um, the name Cumberbatch, is very common in Barbados. When he was even starting to act, his mother had advised him to change his last name in case we came after him for money. I mean, you know, it's all about protecting themselves, really. We'll bring in Alex Renton in a moment. Uh, I mentioned that uh, Alex has written a, a superb book that I do commend to you about his family's involvement in the slave trade, an incredibly honest and painful book for him. But I do also want to uh, welcome into the conversation Patrick Vernon, who has joined us. Uh, Patrick is a social commentator, a campaigner, a cultural historian. Patrick, welcome to Byline Radio. Lovely to have you with us. Thank you. Hi, good evening, everyone. Hi, Patrick. Yeah, yeah. I just, what do you want to say? Yeah, I just, just clarify some facts and figures for, for your listeners. Um, so, just the, so that the slave trade was abolished in 1807, but people could still have 
as, as possessions and property, but there was still illegal activity of slave trade anyway. In 1833, um, that was the act that was passed to give compensation to the beneficiaries of of of, of enslavement, and it was a, there. There was a fantastic play done by um, dramatist Julie, Juliet Juliet Jilks Romeo called The Whip. It was actually shown just before lockdown um, at the Stratford Royal at Stratford Theatre in Stratford upon Avon, and it depicted the debate that took place in Parliament round the bill. And this is quite important because the, um, the people that we had, the plantation owners, um, they formed a lobbying committee called the West India Committee. And my co-author, um, I did a book called 100 Great Black Britons, but my co-author, uh, Dr. Angelina Osborne, has done a PhD thesis on the West India Committee. The West India Committee was set up as a lobbying group by plantation owners to lobby Parliament. They It's been estimated that they actually... Uh, tried to stop Palmer in thinking and debating about slavery and slave trade and delayed it for about 10 to 15 years. And when they realised the game was up, and not because of purely due to the kind words of Wilberforce, but because basically our ancestors rebelled and made it difficult for them, um, that's one of the key factors which we have to recognise. It wasn't just simply Wilberforce saying, oh, I care about black people, because Wilberforce believed in slavery but he was against the trade, which is a contradiction. So this committee, West Indian Committee, which still exists today, by the way, and I'll touch on this a bit later because it's linked to the Sewell Report, um, played a key role in lobbying and browbeating the government to get the £20 million, which isn't actually worth But Robert Beckford did a TV, fantastic TV programme some years ago, and then Dave Olusugu did another programme a couple of years ago. And we're not talking about hundreds of millions. Um, it's actually trillions, if you were to if you were taking out compound interest and work out because the amount of the twenty million pounds in eighteen thirty three was equivalent to forty percent of the UK's national debt. Now if you think of how much money we spent over the last two years coating COVID, round furloughs, round uh, paying businesses, round all the money that we've spent, that that it's a it's a drop in it's equivalent of that. Yeah. Um but yeah, but yeah. the key thing you have to remember is that Part of the deal of the settlement of this £20 million, which there's a fantastic website um, done by the University College London called the Slave Legacies Save Legacies Database, where any of you could go on and you could, do a, you could search on that website and, and you could find out using your family names, your enslaved family name, you can work out who got compensation. Yeah? So on that website, you'll have the name, you'll have people like David Cameron and a whole range of individuals and well-known families uh, and politicians as well. But as part of that deal um, of the 20 million, because actually the, plan, the, the West Indian Committee wanted 30 million, not 20, they wanted 30 million. So the deal was done was, okay, we'll give you 20 million pounds in cash, which we, as, 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 you, write, as you said and, and Ava said, it was paid off in 2015. Um, our ancestors had to work extra five years on the plantations to contribute towards that debt. And, that's what I'm and it was until 1838 that eventual slavery, as we knew it, ended. So, so between 1833 to 1838, we had we were we had to stay in the plantations. We were class initially indentured, and and then after 1838, our ancestors fled the plantations. That is one of the reasons why they brought over from India and China indentured labour, forced migration. Yeah, and this is quite important history 
that, that we have to break down. I mean, I've traced my family history. And so my family came from Jamaica. My, uh, on my mother's side of the family, they came from Westmoreland, Jamaica, everyone familiar with the parts of Jamaica. They, they left the plantations and they went to the neighbouring parish of St. James, which is basically Montego Bay. And that's really when my family started to be, become a family. My main family surname is the Shirley's. And that's when the modern Caribbean family was created after enslavement, after 1838. And I think that's quite important. The final bit I was going to add, because this we can, I know I was going to take hog up too much, is obviously that when you talk about reparations, um, obviously the obvious question is, of course, about the royal family has to apologise. The only official apology that we've had in the UK to date has been from um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, because also the Church of England, they had, they had plantations, they made money. They're not giving any reparations as such, but they've done a formal apology. And when when Ken Livingstone was mayor of London, he apologised um, in 2007 at the time of the bicentenary. As you know, in 2006, Tony Blair didn't apologise. He made a statement of regret. And as you know, William Charles did the same line in the Caribbean statement of regret, which obviously people just laughed at him and rejected that. So officially, there has no this there has been no apology, and this is quite important. And one of the reasons why is the reason why the government had to, and told us to Caricom that they, they can't make an apology is because slavery was legal, so therefore there's no need to apologise. You know, and I know that's absolutely ridiculous because. If you look at uh, another contrast to horrors of history, the Holocaust, under Hitler and the Third Reich, obviously it was legal for them to to treat the, the Jewish people, six million. But because of uh, ending the Second World War, they had, that's why we had the Nuremberg trials, because all of the people that were connected with the Third, Third Reich and Hitler were prosecuted and did basically the life sentences, triple life sentences. And up to this day now, the, the German government still pays reparations to Jewish people internationally around the world. They still pay reparations even today. So we have a compelling case for reparations. Uh, we have to convince the government, we have to convince the public, and even ourselves. One element of reparations which I'm personally interested in is, yeah, money is important, but it's not about money. But one element... I'm interested in because of the work I've done around family genealogy and family history is a package around reparations is for every single person of African descent should have a budget so they could travel anywhere in the world with resources to trace their family history, uh, whether it's going to other parts of Africa, South America, wherever, to trace their family roots and to have DNA testing free of charge for the next 10 years, find out their roots, to have access to books and materials and to, uh, and to have access to genealogies and academics. That is one element, a very small element of the whole aspect around reparations that should be considered not just purely around money. I'll stop there. Uh, don't quite stop there, Patrick. I just want to say something back to you because I've mentioned my Jewish history on my father's side and the fact that my dad got a few grand compensation, nothing that could compare to the loss of his mother, his father, his grandfather, his uncles, who were all wiped out in the death camps. The other things though, but but at least it was an acknowledgement and it was an acknowledgement that, that counted for something in my dad's life that Germany was willing to say, we are sorry and here is a sum of money that shows, that illustrates our regret, that this is not just empty words. But they also did something else as well. They reversed a law, which I think was brought in in 1933, 
which said that those who fled Germany, like my dad eventually did, didn't get out until 1939, about eight weeks before the war started as a little boy with his brother. Mm -hmm. But they said that all those people and their descendants, i.e. me, would be entitled to have their Jewish passport back. Now, in the days of the British Empire, people from the Caribbean, the Windrush generation, were allowed to come and settle in Britain. Indeed, were actively encouraged to settle in Britain. But Britain no longer seems to want to acknowledge its debt to enslaved people from Africa who've lived in the Caribbean, and we've seen the hostile environment and so on. And I just compare that attitude, the attitude of modern Britain towards would-be migrants from the Caribbean to Germany's continued open arms to people like me, who've got this historical claim on the country, Germany acknowledges it. Mm. Britain doesn't. I, I agree with you, and there's, the, and there's other examples uh, around the world. The question that we need to ask yourself, after all these decades and centuries, why is Britain in still denial of, uh, and the royal family and others, to simply say, we made profits, I mean, the money that is made through the enslavement of our ancestors, still circulates in the economy, believe it or not. It still circulates. You, the tweet you mentioned about it, it was actually, it was actually, from, the, it was actually from the Treasury that did that tweet uh, even in 2015, and then they deleted the tweet because they realised that we've got the, the game would be up. And, you know, it's a simple thing. All we want is acknowledgement. And that's, you know, and, and, and secondly, there has to be a process. I think there has to be, and there's an all-party committee chaired by uh, uh, MP uh, Bell, from uh, MP for Streatham. She's she, they formed the all-party committee on reparations, and I think we should support that. I think there should be a royal commission to look at all, I mean, like your previous speaker who talked about the examples in America, we should be also exploring all these different options and scenarios of what reparations look like. And it's not just simply cash and money, because one lesson we can learn is when the Australian government gave sort of compensation to the Aborigines for taking away parts of their land, they blew the money, sadly. Lots of people spent the money on, on um, drugs and alcohol and blew the money. I'm not trying to say that if we were given money right now that we all pay our Wonka debts and go on Caribbean cruises and buy the latest gold that's red. But, you know, money is not everything. It's it's a package. It's about repairing the harm and there's, it has an impact on our physical health, mental health. It's no coincidence why there's so many of us overrepresented in the psychiatric system. There's no, rep there's no coincidence why we have... The big issues around maternal death. There's no instance around diabetes, stroke. There's no instance around a whole range of health conditions, which is linked to that. All the research work done in America for epigenetics, our, 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 our genes changed during 400 years. It mutated because of the changing environment of enslavement. All these factors need to be considered as part of the whole issue around reparations, as opposed to just simply look at money. And of course, it's going to be a lot of hard work and it's going to be all that kind of stuff. I was on, I was on the radio, um, come on, what radio station was, and someone's, um, um, someone said, oh, it's, it's too complicated. No, it's not. Apology is not complicated. Reparation can be, can, be, can be a challenge, but it's not complicated. If there's a will and there's a way, it can be less complicated. Yeah. Adrian, I just want to interrupt here. We yeah. were not invite, encouraged to come to this country for no reason. We were encouraged to come to this country to rebuild after the war. That's what happened because the people here didn't want to do the work. That's what happened. And, um, you know, to help build up the NHS and stuff like that. And 
so we have to take that into account. It's not like the same as the invitation that Germany have offered um, people of Jewish descent. It really isn't the same. And now they're done with us. They want us out. That's what's happened. Yeah, can I add to that? I mean, it's not quite the same example you mentioned uh, comparing what happened in the Holocaust and the Windrush scandal. I've been heavily involved in the Windrush scandal, as you probably may be aware. And even now, the people, and this is and this is like clear documentary evidence, like 2022, clear documentary of how the Windrush generation have been treated poorly by this government, that the Windrush generation are still fighting for compensation, not even given proper compensation. If you can't even sort out something as straightforward, which I believe in compensating the Wilson generation for how they've been treated appallingly, you know, and it's it's a given and everyone acknowledges that. And, the, and Pretty Patel uses the expression right and the wrongs. She does not know the understanding of right and the wrongs. If she did, because right and the wrongs is reparations, but she's not the government will talk about reparations. And we need to sort out the compensation. If we can't sort out the Windrush generation now on current day issues of discrimination, what chance have we got to look at historical wrongs that happened 300 years ago, even though the implications still are alive today in Britain today. The final bit I want to add is about the West India Committee. I mentioned about this West India Committee, this lobbying group that played a key role in getting the 20 million pounds and paying all their mates, basically. You know, basically, that's what's happened. Um, that committee still exists today. It's run by a black woman who is the chair of the National Lottery. She's, her husband is a multimillionaire who made his money in in southern in Rhodesia as a, uh, as Rhodesia would uh, under Ian Smith, and and he's a big donator to the Conservative Party. This same person who runs the West India Committee um, also was on the committee with Tony Sewell report, and in the Sewell report, if you remember when it came out last year, it mentioned that sl- the experience of slavery was a positive thing for black people. That was that is still that legacy even now today. That was the kind of argument that was used nearly 200 years ago to justify slavery, and that was added in the Sewell report. I mean, Tony Sewell laughed it off and, and he started to quote Bob Marley, but we, he was exposed again. So this history and the trying to change the curriculum, and Kemi Bandock just said only last week there was two sides, two sides to um, to slavery. Two really two sides. <laughs> How many sides do you want? Please. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Patrick, thank you. Great to make your acquaintance as well. Thank you. Uh, Kemi Badinok, who Patrick referred to there, is the Minister of State at the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, Conservative MP. I want to bring in Alex Renton at this point. Before I do, just to remind you, if you're new to this, that my name's Adrian Goldberg. You're listening to Byline Radio. It's a revolution in radio. We're here to listen. We're here to learn, not to tell you what to think but we do come from the byline times and the byline times is an independent progressive news source and we report without fear or favor because we're funded by ordinary people like you go check our website bylinetimes.com if you can afford to take out a subscription or even a membership it's only 39 pounds a year for a subscription you get a monthly newspaper you're supporting byline radio and the Byline Times podcast. Uh, You might be listening to the catch-up of Byline Radio on the Byline Times podcast. So check us out on our website, bylinetimes.com. That's where you'll find details of how to subscribe. As I say, I want to bring in Alex Renter now. He's been listening for a good while. And Alex is the author of a fantastic book that we have covered previously on the podcast. It's called Blood Legacy, Reckoning with a Family's Story of Slavery. And it's a searingly honest account 
of one man coming to terms with discovering that his family were involved in the enslavement of other people. Alex, hi, thank you for joining us. Uh, yeah, you can hear me? Yeah, I've got you loud yeah. here, Alex, absolutely. Alex, um, I know that you are very actively involved in this field of somehow making amends for the terrible wrong that was done. Well, it's kind of you to say that, Adrian, and I've been listening to, to Michael and Ava, and you know, as a privileged white British person, I can only say... You know, it's shaming for me that Michael and Ava have to say things to people like me in Britain, say what they've said, which all of which sorry, is sorry, true. No, sorry, my mistake, Alex. It was Patrick Werner, not Michael. My apologies. Oh, sorry, Patrick. Um, uh, it, it, I just I said it, it's, it's shaming that you have to remind us of this history, which you know I wasn't taught at school, and remind us of the current consequences, ongoing consequences of, of slavery, which... Britain refuses to talk about uh, or address, or white Britain does. Uh, uh, it's a deep em embarrassment. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I, I am. Uh, my family are one of those that, that Patrick referred to, who who not only owned uh, enslaved people in the Caribbean um, for eighty or more years, but also received some of that compensation money, some of the twenty million in uh, 1836 and and while you know we are still and we're still privileged today and and that undoubtedly in a way that in some ways that comes from that um my my work since i just you know only five years ago found out that my my family had covered up this history but i i, mean, I found the papers um has been yet yeah, yes to try and tell the story straight and and i've been you know, and talking to people of colour in the Caribbean and here about what they think people like I should do about it. Um, and the first thing is is to try to say we need to acknowledge and we need to apologise because clearly it was a, a genocidal crime. Um, my family themselves enslaved um, perhaps 900 African people and their descendants. To our great shame, we hardly know their names. Um, and we, like many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of other Britons, uh, benefited from it. What is it extraordinary? I published this book last year. Um, and what's been extraordinary, the most extraordinary since, thing since really has been the level of abuse from other white people that gets you know gets directed at me for for suggesting that this is anything we should feel shame about today and and that's been a real eye opener i didn't realize my my class uh was my my kind of white britain was so illiberal was so desperate to feel good about their past rather than be honest about it and we see this kind of culture war played out, don't we, when the National Trust tries to address the reality behind why certain people owned very large houses in very nice country estates. There's a, a whole hullabaloo around that, you know, something as simple as this National Trust property was owned by somebody who made their money out of sugar plantations in Jamaica as a result of the slave trade. Simply saying that is enough to bring down the furies of hell upon people like Corin Fowler, who I've interviewed on the Byline Times podcast before. So to directly acknowledge 
your family's role in the enslavement of other people is is clearly enough to to really get them on your back our language i think is quite interesting alex you know i've grown up throughout my life it's only in the last maybe a year since reading your book that instead of calling slaves slaves (laughs) we call them enslaved people and it's such a minor tweak but actually opens up a whole other world of understanding, which to our shame, we have not been encouraged to have until now. No, I think, I mean, people of of your and my generation were, uh, uh, British people were incredibly poorly educated about about what this this meant. I mean, uh, and and also the extent of it. I mean, as I've gone around the country promoting the book, I I tend to ask, you know, book festival audiences are usually middle-aged and white, the bulk of them. And I say to people, how many African people do you think Britain shipped across the Atlantic in the 200 years in which we were doing it? And no one uh, ever guesses close to the over three million that is actually the truth. And then often I ask people when they think slavery ended. And a lot of people, well, oh, 1807, Wilberforce did it and we should be proud. And you go, well, no, it didn't. (laughs) The slave trade, as Patrick pointed out, became illegal. across the Atlantic, though not between British colonies in 1807. Um, we weren't the first country to do it by any means. Um, but slavery continued to be legal in the British colonies till uh, till the 1830s, as, as you pointed out earlier, which is not so long ago. Um, it's in it and long and so, so recent that in it, it provably has an enormous had an enormous effect on the Britain we live in today, both in the people who benefited from directly from slavery and, and indirectly from all the other British businesses, from gun making to shipbuilding that were associated with it uh, through to the through to the bankers who lent the money. I think every single British bank I found in my research had some connection, had made profits out of slavery at some point. And those are banks that still exist today. It's deeply in the warp and weft of our culture. But I think what, again, as an ignorant white man, I discovered as I actually started to talk to people who were the descendants of the enslaved, uh, it's deeply in, uh, in the racism and the inequality that Britain, that toxifies Britain today. Racism in Britain today is a direct effect of the attitudes my ancestors had in order to feel good about enslaving black people. Alex, it's been great to speak to you. Ava, sorry, did you want to comment on that? Oh, sorry, I thought I heard uh, Ava there for a moment. Uh, Patrick, let, let me ask you about some of the monuments to people involved in the slave trade. I spoke a few months ago to Sir Jeff Palmer, who was Scotland's first black professor, about the Melville Monument in Edinburgh, which is a monument in honour of Viscount Melville, Henry Dundas, who was credited by some people with helping to abolish slavery. What he did was actually bringing or instigate an act of parliament which delayed the point at which slavery would be abolished because he wanted to ensure that he and other slave owners were able to ensure the continuity of their business and that they weren't immediately cut off from the source of those profits. But because he put his name to an act of parliament that eventually led to the ending of slavery, he was seen as some kind of hero. But Mm. in fact, he had only done it 
to ensure the continuity of the slave trade for a further few years. I just want, wonder what you think we should do about monuments to people like him. I mean, you talk about the culture wars, and there's quite a number of monuments still in Britain which celebrate, in inverted commas, the horrific deeds of these slave traders who are perceived as benefactors. So um, obviously we know about Colston and Bristol. Uh, there have been a number of, uh, in the Museum of Docklands, they've removed a statue of a slave trader. I live in Hackney in East London, and we've been campaigning for the last two years for the Museum of the Home. It was formerly called the Jeffrey Museum. Um, they've still got a statue of Sir Robert Jeffrey, another slave trader, who um, that we want that statue to be removed. And, and when we say the statue to be rem removed, we don't, you know, I'm not saying that it should be removed and, and destroyed. I mean, well, maybe wouldn't be a bad idea, but it's about putting in the museum and explaining the history of the, of the individual as well, which I think is quite, quite important about the context. We're not erasing history, we're just adding the colour and the context of history. Um, only recently, uh, Lambeth Council, they're going through a consultation process, potentially considering renaming Tulse Hill, because Henry, Sir Henry Tulse uh, was another slave trader as well. So across Britain, um, there are made, there are still, this leg is still, still there. What I want to focus on, actually, is I want to ask a question to the listeners um, tonight. How many monuments are there that acknowledges the history of enslavement and acknowledges um, the, many, the many millions of men and women that died connected with the slave trade? Can you tell me how many, how many statues exist in Britain on that? And, uh, do, you, do you know the answer to that? I know the answer, but I'm asking... I'm, I'm well, asking. Yeah, no, let's throw it out. That's a really good question. How many statues, memorials, monuments are there to people who are involved in this, the enslavement of African people in the UK, yeah? No, commemorating the Africans that died. Oh, Not commemorating the... <laughs> Am I allowed to guess? Patrick? Yeah, 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 go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. None. Okay, any, any, more, any more offers? Okay, all right. What, what, about, what about Alex? What about you? What do you think? Well, do you know, uh, Patrick, it's a, it's a great question. And I was in Lancaster the other day and I went on the Black, Lancaster Black History Tour and there is one, a really moving monument uh, because the city of Lancaster uh, was directly, very directly involved in the slave trade. But I think it's maybe the only one. I know, I live in Scotland and I know a lot about that Dundas monument, the Melbourne monument. But I don't, I know we don't have a single one in Scotland and there is a good campaign in Scotland to have one. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, let's see if anybody comes in in the next few minutes or so, Patrick. We'll come back okay, to you. Fine, no problem. You want to hang about for a bit? Yeah, sure, happy to hang around. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah, let's welcome uh, Omar Moore into the conversation. Omar, you've been very patient. Thank you very much indeed uh, for taking time to join us on Byline Radio. What, what, are, what have you got to offer, Omar? Well, um, thanks very much indeed uh, for, for hosting this forum and to everyone that's spoken, Ava, Patrick, Alex, everyone, much appreciated. I won't take very long. I'm from London originally. I live in San Francisco, California, and um, Patrick stole a lot of the thunder that I actually was going to talk about, so I'll be very brief. Um, I think there's probably less than five, by the way, memorials or monuments uh, commemorating uh, African people um, in, in, uh, regarding enslavement. That's my guess. Um, but what I really wanted to add uh, very quickly are two things. First, for educational purposes, and I will put this on my Twitter handle at the popcorn R E E L. Some books that I think that people should be reading, just as companion to this conversation. Um, the first of them is Black Britannia by Edward Scobie. The second book 
is the book British by Afua Hirsch, and the final two books, Capitalism and Slavery by Eric Williams and Empire Land by Safnam Sanghera. Uh, I think those are all important books. There's many other books, but that's just offered for uh, education and companion reading. But what I want to say, really, is that, uh, yes, there's many ways, as Patrick talked about, that this can get done. It is not impossible. It is not complex. I, I just think that always gets reserved for us as black people. Whenever we are addressing and advocating for justice and reparations, what we get back from a great many people and a great many white people who are in deep denial is that this is impossible. It happened 150 years ago. But the, the point I'm trying to make here is that the Barclays Bank the descendants of Sir Francis Drake, the descendants of all of the people who actively and demonstrably engaged in the enslavement trade of black people, the descendants of those individuals should, I don't know if it's taxes, whatever it is, but there has to be something that can get done. There's so many different entry and starting points that I think we can, that we can get into to get this done. Here in California, for example, most recently in September of last year, the governor of the state of California, Gavin Newsom, signed a law um, with the benefit of the California state legislature that gave a black family back a major town that it owned and controlled in Los Angeles, California. It was called uh, Bruce's Beach. Now, that was a town in Southern California. It still is a town in Southern California that was taken from the black people who owned it by force. And only last year was it given back. We must have a legislative will. We must have a moral will. We must all be aggressively invested in making sure that black people around the world get the reparations that they should be having. And if all of these other groups are getting reparations, there is no reason on earth why we can't. And just finally... Um, I, I would say the Camerons, all of these people that you've all mentioned in the conversation here tonight, all of them, uh, again, they need to have some kind of tax or something levied upon them. It's a start. But there's so many companies, banks, as people have pointed out, all of these companies that have benefited off our black backs. And so we have to absolutely uh, insist and demand uh, reparations and never let anyone tell us that we are not entitled to this. We also have to stop uh, uh, speaking in the very passive language about this. And uh, none of us can be surprised anymore about what's going on. And uh, the denial in England, you know, where I was born and raised, is very deep. Here in the United States, uh, we've got a long way to go here, no, no doubt. But I think at least you have a, a, a number of people in the white communities, a few, who are very clear on what's going on, and they're actually getting involved in trying to do something about it. But we are all still a long way off from having the vast majority of white people in either England or in the United States or anywhere else um, determined to do something about this. But we must continue to push for this. This is not something that is complicated. And as Patrick said, there's lots of ways to do this, and Ava's talked about this as well with the suggestions she, that she gave earlier. One last thing I'd say. Every time I go back to England, which is almost once a year, I go immediately. My first stop is the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool. I know Alex has talked about Lancashire. Um, that is a place I would go to for people who haven't gone there to educate yourself and use that education then to activate yourself and get involved. Um, you have to know this history. 
You have to know that this history is present. Ava quite rightly said, I agree with her 100%. This is a, an ongoing thing. We, we cannot talk about enslavement as if it's a past tense. It becomes more sophisticated and ever more dangerous in 2022. And we have to start speaking the language of affirming that we must have reparations. I want to thank you again, Adrian, for doing this. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And again, I will put up those books uh, on my uh, Twitter account um, as well. So thank you very much. And Omar, please do that. And please just tag in at Byline Radio and we will retweet that gladly. We've spoken to Satnam Sanghera on the Byline Times podcast before about his book, Empire Land. And as Alex says, he has faced abuse for simply daring to raise these issues from his fellow white people. Alex has. Satnam, I know, has also uh, received great hostility for simply trying to honestly raise questions about our history and that's a shocking state of affairs so we'll be only too delighted to amplify the message Omar thank you so much for taking part been great to speak to you Alex uh, uh, forgive I hope uh, our other listeners will forgive us for kind of two white men just talking about this for a moment but but the scale of willful ignorance by the white mainstream establishment over our shared history is profoundly shocking. We don't know this history unless we go out and seek it. Very, very slowly, people are starting to understand what exactly has gone on. And I'm always intrigued by the way in which people are drawn into conspiracy theories, whether it's around 5G, whether it's around COVID, whether it's about man on the moon, whether it's about JFK. Well, I'll tell you what, if you want to investigate a conspiracy theory, look at how the British education system has systematically denied access to the truth about Britain's role in slavery for over a hundred years. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. I, I, I've got a book uh, on my shelf here, which I, I read as a child, and uh, my grandfather read. Uh, it was pub first published in 1900 and um, was in print for 100 years. It's called Our Island Story, and it's a, a British history for children and adolescents. Um, most successful history book in the English language of all time. And it has one page, one page on uh, slave, one entry in the index. And if you turn to it, my edition's from the 1950s, you turn to that page and open it and it says slavery how william wilberforce freed the slaves <laughs> and and this this is all we were taught uh, what what i and and i have to say you know i'm 60 and it took me until until i was 55 and actually started um uh, reading through my own family's papers and realizing what my family had been up to, um, that I I started to educate myself, and and, and then finally, unlike any of my family uh, had ever done, went out to Jamaica and started to talking to people there about what what they felt and how the history had affected them. It's quite extraordinary, and you know, I've to I, I kind of think of it. It's a bit like what the education you get in North Korea, we're told about the rest of the world, and quite why Britain. Uh, 
that likes to think of as itself as this brave country that um, uh, prides itself on free speech and democracy and so on, was so terrified of its own history that it had to cover it up. Even for people like me, who you can hear from my voice, had a very, you know, had a top education, uh, is it, extraordinary. But And the battle now is for, to teach white britain that the history that they they grew up with particularly the older 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 amongst us was completely false and maliciously false and they need to open their minds to the fact that there is another better history and stop fighting to preserve the statues and preserve the myths that they grew up with because unless we do that work and that's the other thing I, i kind of find myself trying to say to people we will not solve the issue of we will not begin to address racism and inequality in britain today let's bring in uh, let's reset and remain who i think wants to uh, make another comment hello again hi right i think it's important that uh, white people actually speak about it and so uh, whatever shame that is felt um should be uh, you know just uh, you deal with it internally we've had to as black people sort of deal with the shame of having been um, uh, descended of people of, who are enslaved and you know uh, uh, there are many benefits to having come through that history um, but um, uh, you know where we are in America and, and certainly I know that um, yeah I, I can be appreciative of wherever you are in Britain in terms of that kind of conversation but we are interested in people interrogating their own history um, it, it's important that that happens and um whatever flows from that. Uh, another good book to read is by Kojo Koram, who is British also, he's of Ghanaian extract. Um, it's called Uncommonwealth. And he traces uh, the tale of how after the end of the um, empire, the British empire, uh, you know, an interconnected group of well-heeled British intellectuals, politicians, accountants, and lawyers offshored their capital. Um, seized assets and saddled uh, debt in the former, as he calls it, dependencies. And this, of course, enabled horrific inequality across the globe um, as capitalists profited and ordinary people across Britain's uh, former territories in Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean were trapped in poverty. So, you know, we are usually pathologized as just not able to uh, govern our countries in a way that causes the people to um, uh, uh, have a uh, you know have a larger group of people who are doing well and and so forth. But you know, um, the history um, because this is you say the royals and reparations, the history of empire in. Um, former colonies is the history of classism um, that also masks um, uh, a lot of uh, poverty because of inequities built into the system. So it is important that these histories are interrogated and, um, you know, there's shame that can be felt on both sides. um, And it's okay if uh, people as they do that, uh, white people and people in Britain are feel ashamed. I hope they um, do a better job in some respects of um, really broadening the um, lessons and not pushing back against really learning the history. Uh, I want to say as a final comment that 
Britain is known for its historical dramas. There's a lot of um, navel-gazing historically. And so um, I think any argument that says that uh, we need to move on is mitigated by, you know, what if, you know, the effluence uh, that comes um, from Britain. There's a lot of looking back. So why not? Uh, yeah. this L- well? looking, looking back in certain ways at certain places and uh, yeah, very rose-tinted very often as well. Thank you for that. Um, uh, before I go to Tasneem, Ava, did you want to make another point? Yeah, I did, actually. I just really um, wanted just to add, like, um, it's been portrayed as a conspiracy theory, and the last speaker spoke about shame and all of this. Let's get things right, OK? It's not like a conspiracy theory that's been, you know, it's been kept out of the education books for some kind of reason. It's willful ignorance. And I don't believe there's a lot of shame when it comes to Britain's historic um, empire and colonialism and slavery. In fact, there's a lot of pride in Britain about these things. Um, you even have to have an ordinary in ordinary members of the public. I mean, the amount of times that I've spoken on racial issues and had people um, write to me and say stuff like, oh, you would have been slave 200 years ago. Let's get this right. There's no shame. There's no embarrassment. They're not sorry. So I, I really don't think we should be categorizing. We're always affording this kind of generous interpretation when it comes around this kind of subject about racism and slavery and stuff. And it really, the reality on the ground is not like that. Even when we were kids, you have other kids telling you, at least I wasn't a slave or you can be my slave. You know, they have black kids in schools, even when they teach about slavery, they get a little black kid in a school and they will say, hey, you be the slave. How much would it cost to buy you? There is pride around it. Let's not forget that. And, and please, let's not be over generous. People don't care in that way. Ava, really appreciate that comment. If you disagree with Ava, or if you want to amplify what she has said, if you're listening on your phone live at Byline Radio, there's a little microphone in the bottom left hand of your screen. If you've got something to add, to question, for the rest of us to consider, just tap that microphone and you can join in. And if you've got, as I say, something sensible to say, we'll let you say it. If not, you'll have to sling your hook. Uh, but uh, we're keen to get as many voices as we can from all corners of the globe to speak as well. You're listening to Adrian Goldberg here on Byline Radio, or you may be listening again on Catch Up via the Byline Times podcast. Either way, please support our work by taking out a subscription to the Byline Times to get a wonderful monthly newspaper called the byline times and you'll be supporting all of our independent all of our independent fearless journalism just go to bylinetimes.com to find out how to subscribe that's bylinetimes.com uh tasneem has joined us hello tasneem uh evening yeah so i just uh, wanted to uh, i'm well thank you um i just wanted to amplify what alva was saying is that i, I didn't really see how our political class are doing anything other than writing out and and proudly writing out the history of or our shared history to do with um, people of colour in this country. We, we had Michael Gove back in 2013 as Education Secretary writing out Mary Seacole uh, from from the uh, school uh, curriculum. And the reason he did this was so that he could devote more time, he said, to the exploration of Churchill. Now, I'm all, I don't mind that. I don't mind if you spend more time speaking about Churchill, if you speak about how much of a racist Churchill was and how much of a warmonger he was as well. But that wasn't the case. And then, you know, he's obviously 
backing a, a prime minister who uh, has spoken in disparaging terms um, about people with any smiles. So, you know, this is all known before we have had an, uh, an election and the British public elected a person who spoke in racial terms and that person, uh, Boris Johnson, then picked a cabinet um, who, who similarly have got racist histories. Michael Gove was uh, was recorded back in Oxford with a debate with uh, with um, David Gottlieb uh, when he was a student there, who who, who was uh, being extremely racist uh, about about black people in other countries and their nations. So, re- realistically, how, how do you turn? Um, how do you turn the guns on people who are racist when the people who run us, who run this country, are racist and they're supported in a popular... Well, we should stress, as name, of course, the, the metaphorical guns, of course. You wouldn't want to turn any guns on, real guns on people, but... No, uh, of course. So, the, 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 you're right. They're as metaphorical as Pretty Patel's guns on, uh, on, uh, on refugees who are crossing the channel, and they're as metaphorical as Katie Hopkins' guns... Um, as uh, she 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 proposed uh, proposed them on the on the same sort of issue as yeah, well, I, I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't really wouldn't uh, grace uh, any kind of uh, I, I just wouldn't grace the conversation with any reference to Katie Hopkins. So I think he's, <laughs> he's out with uh, any kind of reasonable uh, discussion. Tasneem, thank you. I want to I bring in. Uh, I'm just going to get as many voices on as we can. The, the help team who've joined us as well. Hello, the help team. What what have you got to offer us? Let me first say thank you for um, bringing me up. And um, this platform is a very, very interesting one because we've been looking to set something up um, discussing this frame. So thank you. My name is Ola Johnson, I'm the vice president of the Help Team. The Help Team is a non-profit organization from the UK, healing every living person together, each achieve more. Um, uh, talking about repatriation, talking about the slavery issue, etc. I think um, we're more focused on um, how we can empower the continent, how we can bring in um, development, sustainable human capital development to the population, how we can um, eradicate the mass migration problem, and um, how we can, um, you know, come together as a force to contribute our resources into coming together and um, developing the agriculture sector. And when would... you say, in, and this is in Africa? Yeah, I'm presently um, in Senegal, in, in Sali, Senegal, where we drove in from Morocco. We started off in Morocco. We're in Morocco, we're in Mauritania, we're in Guinea-Bissau, we're in Guinea-Conakry, we're in Mali-Bamako, we're in Gambia, we're in Senegal. We have a presence in Guinea-Equatoria. All this platform you will see on our website, on our Instagram, on our Twitter page. I'm very, very happy that you guys are having this conversation because that means it is time for change. When there is a discussion going on in a framework in, in the line that we're discussing today, we have a chance to make a change. Change. And the chance to make a change is this discussion is going to take us to that next level. How difficult has slavery made it for countries in Africa to develop sustainably as sovereign nations? Because people often talk about the legacy of slavery being that the British, but also other colonial powers, drawing artificial lines in countries, lines that suited the colonial powers, but didn't necessarily go with the grain 
of the lives lived by people in those areas that were colonized. Wow. You are... <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is interesting. Do you know some people woke, woke up in their house, they were a citizen of Gambia, and their, their, their husband is a citizen of Senegal. That, that's how the, um, um, the division, the um, demarcation, the barriers has affected um, communities in Africa. If you go to like Casamas in the area, this is a part of Senegal, but it's it's like you have to go through Gambia to get into Casamas. And um and um the way the borders are divided, it is affecting the market, it is affecting production, it is affecting their growth right now. However, we're managing to be bridging those gaps by bringing the relation. And then there is a platform right now, which is the um, free trade zone. I think the free trade zone is going to facilitate some of the barriers that the communities are facing right now in the food shortage platform because the pandemic has actually hit Africa beyond what we ever could imagine. Why? Because they're not sustainable in the agricultural platform whereby most of their food are brought in from the international national community and is imported to the country. So we're promoting them to focus on the agriculture so we can start healing the divide and the mental slavery mentality because it must be a mental slavery mentality when you can grow fonio in the back of your house but you rather go to ocean or to a grocery store to buy spaghetti. You know, and, and, and we're, to, we're, to, we're talking in this, and, and that that's really fascinating insight. And, you know, we're talking here very directly about reparations, whether that's in cash terms or in some other kind of term. But I guess we are fundamentally talking about money for the communities that you work in and in the sector that you work in, encouraging self-sustainability and agriculture. Could you envisage a day when the UK government and other Western governments could give the people that you work with significant sums of money that might make a difference on the ground to their lives? Um, yes, I can envision the day, but envisioning the day is one thing, but envisioning and structuring the platform that would disseminate the funds to the right people, it's another thing because we've seen situations where money was being allocated to certain people in the countries, in this in um, African countries, maybe for polio, for all sort of um, mark practices, etc. But the money did not get down to the people. So we need to start forming a platform whereby when money is given, the money could be given to, uh, to a robust institution that would do the dissemination and the um, dissemination of funds to the necessary families that it it will reach. Yes, the funds will make a difference. I'm a minister from the sixth region state of the African diaspora. We're working on repatriation right now, and it's a lot, a lot of work. And I'm telling you that um, in as much as we're looking to get these funds from the international community, etc., we need to start cleaning our own home of how these funds are going to be utilized, how they're going to be disseminated, how they're going to be um, um, invested into not for just the money, but for the money to be able to turn the economy around of these countries because most of these countries right now they are in disarray so yes it would help it will assist in every platform but how is it going to how are we going to implement it that is what i would like i would be more interested in discussing and i thank you very much for having this discussion because it is a platform whereby you can extend on our next discussion how these funds are going to be implemented and how we can come together
other as a society talking about repatriation talking about funds talking about a camel um a uh, 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 horse and a, um, a land and a meal or, say, or whatever they say you know it is very very fundamental for us to keep on the, the discussion so thank you for having me and i'm still here listening thank you very much Thank you for your time. I uh, really do appreciate you joining us uh, from The Help Team, a charity based in London. Uh, uh, Ava, uh, I've been calling you Ava all night, and you told me the other day when we were <laughs> that it's Ava, and I, yeah, my sincere apologies. I'll Don't worry about it. I'll beat myself up all night over that, uh, but I'm sorry. Ava, um, go on. You wanted to make a comment on that. Oh, just a quick comment about um, people being able to grow stuff in Africa and then going to the supermarket and buy stuff. What there needs to be, um, what needs to happen is a lot of these big um, companies need to cut, get out of Africa because there are some very aggressive campaigns. Um, I did a room with Lavette. I can see her in the room. Um, the other day, and we we brought up the subject of Nestle. Nestle did a very, very aggressive campaign. And a lot of these companies will um, put substandard prof, uh, product in Africa and really encourage the people to use them. The baby milk that they were putting into Africa was not of standard. It would not have passed any standard, any tests in Britain, America, Canada, anywhere like that. And then on top of that, there also a lot of pollution in Africa as well. So the water that they needed to make these bo these um, bottles of milk for the baby was actually polluted. A lot of African people have been um, killed in these kind of ways as well. So in terms of Africa benefiting what they have to do and Africa being a mess and stuff like that, I mean, there is a lot of aggression against Africa. And you only have to see what they did to Patrick Lumumba. Anybody who is um, basically anti-colonial, um, they go into these countries and they interfere with them and install puppet regimes. They kill people who, you know, so then there has to be, that has to be addressed as well. So, so forgive me, Ava, uh, who was Patrick? Tell me about Patrick. He was the leader in the Congo and basically he was anti-colonialism. I mean, I'm not a historian. I don't want to get into it. Basically, Belgium gave his relatives back, I think it was his teeth a couple of years ago. They melted him in a vat of acid. He was very anti-colonial, very, you know, you have had African leaders in the past who have been killed because they don't want anything, to, you know, they want to install pride. So when we say that Africa is in a big mess, we have to also remember why. Wow. She touched a fantastic subject there regarding the sub substandard produce coming into Africa. Do you know you touched Nestle? Wow. Sister, thank you very much. Again, I'm thanking you guys for this room, and I'll always come to this room. I'm going to lock myself in this room. Why? Thank you so much. Go on, go on, Patrick. Do you want to have a yeah. fun? I think I've managed to um, call you Michael. I've called Ava mm. Ava. Uh, I'm trying to think how I can insult mm. Alex Renton before we finish. You, you, may need, you may need to change your name and call yourself New Line or something like that as opposed to Byline. <laughs> anyway, um, so going back to the previous speaker about Senegal. Actually, I've traced my family history from Jamaica to, to Senegal as well. So that's another conversation. But the point about um, what you can do around reparations uh, to recognise the situation in Africa, there's been a campaign that started back in the 1990s called Cancellation of Third World Debt. If all the debts in Africa were cancelled, that would make a massive, massive start for those countries, uh, all the 55 countries of Africa and then change the terms of reference around the balance of trade. And that's and they can start they can start talking about giving money. 
So cancelling federal debt is a must as part of any reparation package. I'm, I'm just trying to think, a few years ago, um, Bill Clinton came to Birmingham, my home city, and when he was president, it was quite a, a feather in the cap for Birmingham. And my mum was one of many ordinary citizens in Birmingham who gathered to form a human chain uh, to protest against debt and you know debt which would never realistically be repaid but which was kind of an extension in the modern day of slavery and i, I thought that debt had been cancelled so no, no no debt's been cancelled you know the funny thing about it haiti which is one of the poorest countries on this planet is still paying the french government when it got its independence and you know on the on the Thompson Louverture. even now that's why it's impoverished. So we need to cancel those kind of debts anyway. The pro anyway I've, I've just come back. I've got to shoot off anyway. Um, just two points. Obviously, I want to still hear people's... I can give the answer to my question. But before I go with that, you, talk, so you touched on... on um, people made references to books. So I'd like to add to the book list. Um, I'd like to add David Olusugan's book, Black and British. Uh, I'd like to add my book, written by my co-author, Dr. Angelina Osborne, uh, 100 Great Black Britons. Um, another book I want to add is Robin Walker, When We Ruled, which is a, probably one of the best books on the history of Africa before enslavement. Because the way that we are taught in schools and in the media, that we talk about black history, it's about in slavery. No, it's not. Slavery only represents not even 1% of black, black history globally. But So it's important to understand the history of Africa and the civilizations and the context, which I think is really, really important. That's not taught properly seriously in the curriculum or in the, in the media as well. Um, the, you mentioned about Satnam and Kangara. He's from Wolverhampton like myself. And in in Wolverhampton, the black country, if no one's familiar with the black country, because Wolverhampton, Dudley, um, Sandwell, Warsaw. Warsaw, yeah. Um, there's been a campaign uh, several years ago called Black Country Day, celebrating industrial heritage of the black country, you know, basically steam engines, coal mining, the canals, all that kind of stuff, industrial heritage, basically. And um, they had a school competition and they wanted to design a, school, a flag to go with this. And uh, a school girl entered the competition, a lot of young people did, but they, in terms of the design brief, they gave particular colors, which they used. And, um, and basically, um, they launched the flag. Every July, every year, they celebrate Black Country Day uh, in the Black Country. Um, a couple of some years ago, I raised issues, objections to um, the Black Country Day event. I said, "Great if you want to celebrate the industrial heritage or history, but you've missed that one simple fact that during you know because everyone talks about that the industrial revolution started in the in the West Midlands and that kind of stuff. It's in the classic classic history books for the school." But they never tell you where did the money come from. The money was, the money that funded the industrial revolution came from enslavement, from those plantations, the, the triangle trade, and one of the key 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 um, products that were made during this time were fetters, handcuffs, chains. These were used to enslave my ancestors on the slave ships. They were used on the plantations in the Caribbean and North America and South America. And all these chains and handcuffs were made in the black country in the furnaces. So when I raise this fact that, do you realize, yeah, you're celebrating social heritage, 
the Western, the black country made loads of money out of enslavement. You actually, the chains were used to enslave my ancestors. Guess what happened to me? I got hate mail. The, the local newspaper, it was a star, had a campaign targeting me for about three months, basically saying I should apologise for what I said, which I was telling the truth. And I said to them, if you don't believe me, go to Wolverhampton Archives, go to the Black Country Museum. There is records of adverts made by these small manufacturers. So they were used the word, the, the end collar. That's what they used, the, word, the expression. I've, I've got uh, MPs and MEP, MEPs were saying, I should apologise. I need to learn about the history of the Black Country. Hello, I was born in Wolverhampton. Hello, I went to school in Wolverhampton. You know, and actually do know the history, but you, you again, you've, you've deliberately missed it out. It was, it was that bad, by the way, um, the hate I got and the vitriol. The Expression Star ran an online campaign um, because I was meant to be doing a talk for Black History Month at Wolverhampton Art Gallery. And they had an opinion poll. Should Patrick Vernon come to Wolverhampton and do a talk for Black History Month? Seriously, that's what they did. And 80% of the online readers said, I should never come to Wolverhampton. I replied back saying, well, with all due respect, my my family's in Wolverhampton. And it was that bad that Wolverhampton Council did a risk assessment. And when I did my talk, which was about four or five years ago, they hired a private security firm for my safety. This is in Britain. And this was in 2017. A private security firm was there in case I might get attacked by some EDL or racist or fascist because I was just tell, I'm trying to tell the truth. So when you put your head above the parapet, this is the type of stuff that we get all the time. Hate mail on social media, threats all the time, because people don't want to understand and confront the truth. As Ava said, people don't, they are very proud of this history and, and we've got to change that mindset. If we don't change that mindset, we'll have these conversations for the next hundred years about oh, apology or not apology. We should be moving on from the apology and doing the real deal and doing and sort of reparations. Yeah, um, the, um, the, and the black country flag, I think you hinted at this, but just to spell it out, so a schoolgirl won a competition to design the black country flag, which is, uh, uh, as I've mentioned, I live in Birmingham, I'm literally just over the border from the black country, yeah. and you will see in many parts of the black country proudly flying a flag, which is black on one side, is white in the middle and is red on the other side. And in the middle, the white bit is in the shape of a cone, but across all three colours are chains. Now, Honestly. if you raise if you raise the issue of the chains, people will say, well, chains were used in all sorts of things. They were used on boats, for example. In, in a black country, small town outside Dudley, a place called Netherton, there's a giant anchor, for example, which was used in the on the Titanic. So... Yeah. Make, the making of chains for all sorts of industrial purposes was very much part of what the black country did. But it, it is dishonest to pretend that chains were not made in order to enslave people. In the same way that one part of Birmingham, there is a district close to the city centre called the Gun Quarter. And it was a gun quarter. Those guns were taken to Africa to help with the enslavement of human beings. And it, it, unless we start acknowledging that fact, we're going to have a problem. 
Yeah, the, the, the interesting thing is, obviously, I've had conversations with various people who are pro. That I've never used the R word that it's racist or anything at all. I just say it's culture insensitive and appropriate. It's no different to the Confederate flag. I equate it to that level, uh, and all those Confederate memorabilia that have been, has been created deliberately to create fear. Um, and when I've said um, that these chains, but, I mean, and by the way, Britain had the monopoly. Remember during the slave trade. So through Charles II with the Royal Charter, Royal Africa Company, they had a monopoly to create all these chains on the slave ships. Remember, we were the biggest trader on this. So we, so the black country benefited and funded the, funded the canal system in the black country, funded all the big houses. And, and actually, some of these manufacturers, ironically, had plantations in the Caribbean on top of that. And they got compensation on top of that. So this is the history, but people don't really understand. So when I raise these issues and and people say to me, oh, Patrick, you're attacking white working class history. So no, I'm not attacking white working class history. So no, these people that made money, all these merchants, they oppress us too. Yeah, but did they rape and molest your mother or grandmother, your ancestors? Did they enslave you? Did you, did you literally, literally got paid wages? We got nothing at all. We worked for 400 years, no, no 40 acres or a meal. And people always try and equate a like, a, like a similar like. It's not a similar like. Yeah, you literally had your families together working in those horrible conditions in the furnaces. But compared to plantation, there is no comparison. And this is, and people have to understand the people don't respect the suffering that we go through, and they and they denegate and negate, negate our lived experiences. And that's why they never take seriously our issues around racism today, and what happened during the time of. Uh, enslavement as well and that is and that goes back to my question which i asked everyone how many national recognized memorials which recognize the victims of the transatlantic slave trade go on then give us the answer patrick none none no no none whatsoever there might be kind of artist impressions there might be murals there is no national funded recognition funded um memorial around that um, there's been a campaign since 2006 led by uh, a fantastic woman called Oku, a retired school teacher called Memorial 2007. She was able to negotiate a plot of land in Hyde Park. Um, and, and luckily she got permission from Westminster Council to have a memorial. She's she trying to raise about £14 million. When Boris Johnson was mayor of London, he made a commitment to say that I'd support this initiative. I think it's very important. When he became Prime Minister, he received numerous letters from Oku and a whole range of other organisations to see would he consider that. But he, up to this day now, there's no proper recognition. We've got more memorials on about cats and dogs in this country than recognising the victims of the transatlantic slave trade. And it's really fantastic that the government is given a fair amount of funding to support Holocaust Memorial and Holocaust Museum. But the Holocaust was caused by Hitler and Germany Yet this instant, this horror has the this the current the British government has never ever acknowledged it and given any national support for memorial. That needs to change. Patrick, it's been great to hear from you. Thank you so much for taking part in Byline Radio. Thank you very much indeed. Let's speak no, to uh, let's speak to uh, E. A. Pankush, who's joined us. Hello, E. A. Hi, hi. Uh, uh, thank you very much for giving me the the time to talk. Um, I was originally uh, uh, born in um, in a in a tiny country in East Africa uh, called Burundi, and I remember at school. Obviously, we we always had uh, a Belgian uh, uh, curriculum because we were colonized by Belgium, 
uh, and then the Germans before. So when I left, when I left Burundi in 1999 uh, for Britain, I absolutely had no idea that some of my family were taken during the slave trade. I remember being welcomed uh, in a family uh, of, of Jamaicans. Uh, I lived with two Jamaican families and they always told me the stories about the slave trade. Um, we didn't study this, this, this history uh, back, back in Burundi. So back in 2019, I, I took a, a DNA test uh, and it was, this was purely for health reasons. I wanted to investigate my health because I was very, very sure that I was 100% f from where basically I was born. And I was quite shocked to find uh, many DNA family who trace some of their ancestors to uh, that horrible story of uh, the, the slave trade. So obviously you can imagine the, the shock, uh, you know, coming from, from Africa. Uh, we were always told that uh, Burundi uh, resisted the slave trade, uh, um, uh, traders from uh, Tanzania and Zanzibar. But I, I never realized that some of my family actually uh, came from Tanzania and Zanzibar and Congo. And this is the place where uh, most of the Omani uh, slave traders and the Portuguese uh, took, pe uh, took people uh, to places like the Caribbean, uh, Barbados, uh, Jamaica. So some of my DNA family actually revealed that uh, they, they, they descended from the, the, the slaves of Jamaica and Barbados. And they also said that they descended from the royal family of Portugal. So me being exposed to such a story, uh, I was double shocked because I had already lived uh, a genocide in Burundi, you know, similar to Rwanda. And I never realized that we had more people who were victims of, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 yeah, you know, I, I don't even know how to, 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 to label it, but I, I started just campaigning in the city where I live. Uh, I live in Aberdeen in Scotland. Mm. I started just talking to the members of parliament. I said, you know, can we do some form of, uh, uh of, of, uh, commemoration? Can we do some lectures in schools and universities on the slave trade? I received no reply. I, I then asked the, uh, the Aberdeen City Council, I asked whether we could do maybe a black history commemoration, uh, maybe like a week's lecture, uh, invite uh, speakers to the city. I received no reply. So I reached out to a black professor uh, from Jamaica, uh, uh, Sir uh, Geoff uh, Palmer. Oh, yeah, I've interviewed him on the podcast. Top man. Yeah, with Sir Jeff, yeah. I said, look, I'm quite new to this. I want to campaign. I've discovered some of my family who were taken, uh, you know, to the Caribbean, to, to the Americas. Most of them have even traced uh, some of the slave owners uh, to this very city. And some of the digging that I've done, uh, I've actually been able to find some of these families. They, 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 they're actually some of the wealthiest of this city. So I was just talking to uh, councillors and members of parliament and uh, Professor uh, uh, Palmer. Um, obviously, this is an ongoing campaign. And I was quite shocked to be approached by someone from uh, Grampian Race and Equality, who basically said, 
uh, that I was, <laughs> I was trying to do something that would get me a lot of enemies. So it was an indirect way to basically say that uh, what I'm trying to do, uh, you know, I may find that uh, people would not necessarily embrace this idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what I, what I wanted to say is that um, going back to the story of East Africa, um, I'm not sure whether many of you are aware, but uh, next to our country is a country they call DRC. That's Democratic Republic of Congo. Yeah. And <clears throat> this particular country uh, was privately owned by the Belgian king, uh, Leopold II, who is a cousin of Queen Victoria. And he held the country for 200 years. At the time, rubber was like uh, oil um, in today's term. And whoever did not um, get enough rubber, he would basically get the, the children's uh, or the men's uh, hands uh, cut off and shipped to Belgium. Um, so there has actually been <clears throat> a, a campaign at Parliament in Belgium asking for reparation from Belgium because we're all colonized by Belgium and, uh, you know, so Congo, Rwanda and Burundi. But this, this is what's most shocking. Uh, there is actually uh, obviously a global appetite for, for, for minerals that we use like uh, 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 to manufacture computers, mobile phones. And the, you know, the, the, the scramble for these minerals in the Congo has led to 10 million people killed. Um, of course, some outside uh, observers might say that uh, you know, these are Africans killing Africans. But then I may add that uh, some of these min they are killing to supply uh, some of these min minerals to the global market. And I think in my, in my view, it, it just goes to show that globally speaking, we're still not able to address some of these injustices. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's, a really, that's a really good and insightful call. Thank you. Uh, yes, thank really you. Appreciate that's a, a really, you. really good insight. Ava, thank you, you, you thank wanted you. to comment, I think, on what EA is saying. Oh, no. Um, oh. Sorry, I had my hand up quite a while. It was really about sort of what you and Patrick were speaking about um, in terms of cancelling third world debt. There's also a lot of things that people don't understand is that the contracts... Um, France in particular have some, uh, when countries gain independence from France, I mean, when France colonised, it's like colonisation on steroids. Honestly, if you go to the part of the Caribbean, like um, places like Martinique, you don't even realise you're still in the Caribbean and St. Bart's and places like that. They colonise it really badly. But also the contracts that some of these countries have, we spoke about Haiti um, and a lot of African countries who gained independence from France. It's not as clear cut as people think, they're also at an economic disadvantage. So when they, because when they want to sell produce from their own country, they have to ask France first. Um, if I, I'm sure Britain's got similar deals, I can't confirm where, but they have to ask them first. If France don't want to buy this product, then they are allowed to go out and sell it to other people. But then um, they also have to pay France part of that profit. So it's not just about cancelling the debt, it's about ca cancelling these really unfair contracts that are putting put in place. And basically these places, even if you want to call them independent, the, you know, the colonisers still have their boots 
uh, on the necks of these people. And when we're speaking about France and Belgium as well, we do have to also remember the ties to Britain because there is, um, as this... Um, as the previous caller said, King Leopold was uh, Queen Victoria's cousin. And um, Queen Victoria famously sent her children around to marry the, fam the, the people from royal families to keep the British monarchy strong. So British um, blood is staining all of these uh, modern day conflicts and all of these things that are happening around the world. So I just wanted to add that as well. Is it just me? Is this space just gone dead? No, it's me. I forgot to switch my yeah. My oh, hey, I was getting really worried. I was thinking, what did oh, I say? My... It wasn't that bad, was it? <laughs> Don't worry, it happens all the time. I was, right. just, I was just, I was just reading a tweet which was you've retweeted, Ava, but which Michael Morgan, Mike Who A TV, uh, who uh, retweeted. A tweet from 2018 that we were discussing earlier on. This is a tweet by HM Treasury, and it says, Here's today's surprising Friday fact. Millions of you helped end the slave trade through your taxes. And it's got a picture of people in, in the midst of being beaten and being forced to work in a field. And then it says, did you know, in 1833, Britain used £20 million, 40% of its national budget, to buy freedom for all slaves in the empire? How good of them. The amount of money borrowed for the Slavery Abolition Act was so large that it wasn't paid off until 2015, which means that living British citizens help pay to end the slave trade. So uh, this is a genuine tweet from 2018. As I say, we referenced it earlier. HM Treasury boasting about the fact that ordinary British taxpayers until 2015 were paying to compensate people who were slave owners, who were enslaving other human beings whilst the slaves themselves were never compensated. It is breathtaking. Absolutely breathtaking. Let's bring in Rick. Hello, Rick. Welcome along, my friend. Welcome to Byline Radio. Oh, hi. Good evening, um, Byline, and good evening, everybody. Um, I just, you know, I've been listening for a while, and I just, I've got so many, everyone who's spoken has said some really powerful, you know, stuff, and I've just got a few things I wanted to mention. Um, the first thing is, I think I, I was watching this um, tour of the Caribbean with um, a keen interest because obviously it started with Belize and Belize was a protest which forced the royals to relocate to a different location. That was pretty embarrassing. And then they moved to Jamaica and Jamaica, um, you know, they were quite vocal about what they thought about, you know, the, the British um, history of slave trade and what they wanted. And I think of the three nations, Jamaica was probably the loudest. And then he went to the Bahamas, and I think the volume of um, anger kind of just went down significantly in my observation. And I think for me, it made me reflect on something which I think black people, we don't often um, think about. I think part of the problem of the way slave trade, colonialism is viewed in the world is because I think black people, we don't really have a consensus on how to demand um, our history to be respected. Because... You know, for me, and I might be wrong in my observation, but I felt like Bahamas just took the wind out of Jamaica's sails in a way, because Bahamas, in my opinion, pretty much just went along with the royal tour of their country. There was a small protest, which actually the Bahamas police force tried to stop, 
of the Rastafari community protesting the um, royal visit, um, which was just a massive contrast to how Jamaica handled the royal visit. Jamaica allowed their, you know, their population to protest and say what they feel. And we had Bahamas just being a little bit, I don't know, like welcoming of this royal tour. But I think for me, what I wanted to get across here is the fact that until black people, whether you're an African black person, a Caribbean black person, black people born in the UK or in Europe and America, etc. Until I think as a community of people who were wronged by the same institution, which was Europeans, white supremacy, using black people as free labor um, people to be, they just tortured us for you know their own you know I don't know amusement until I think as a black community as black people who share uh, you know genetic who share um, a skin color who share history until we learn to actually come together and say do you know what whether you're an African who stayed in Africa whether you're a, you're a black person from Africa was taken to the Caribbean to Brazil Americas we all have a history which we you know, we share and we need to find a common voice. I think it's the only way we're ever going to actually start making headway in making European people, American people, white people hear what we've got to say. When you've got a situation where Jamaica is speaking loudly and we're all listening, because I think when we, when it hit Jamaica, everyone was listening because Jamaica is a country that is the most, probably the most well-known in the Caribbean, the most spoken of in the Caribbean. So when things were going down in Jamaica, everyone was listening, everyone was looking. And then he went to Bahamas and I just felt like the energy was lost a little bit in the Bahamas. And for me, it reflects the fact that sometimes we black people, we don't tend to see eye to eye on our shared history. And we've got people who enable um, the white community to essentially take the piss. And we've got people who are quite vocal, who are quite forthright in demanding that our history is respected. And then, Patrick, I think you mentioned about, you know, there's a lack of, um, um, you know, memorials in the UK. You're completely right. And I think I remember um, William made a speech, in, I think in, in Jamaica, that, you know, he's proud that Britain has now put in place a a statue of fruits from the Caribbean as some sort of, you know, we're respecting your history. And I just thought, are you kidding me? I think we've got a population of us who are accepting gesture politics, you know, fruits as a sign of respect for our history. I think those fruits were, in my opinion, gaslighting, you know, the fruits are not doing anything for our history. The fruits are not changing how Britain is refusing to recognize their their contribution to the slave trade. So I think for me, I just I don't know. I don't know when I think as a black community, we will ever, I think, reach some sort of agreement on the fact that we've all suffered the same, you know, a similar experience at the hands of white supremacy. And that we actually need to start singing from the same hymn sheet until we do so. I think the Western community will continue to take the piss. I think that's where I stand right now. I think until African black people, Caribbean black people, American black people, until we see eye to eye, I think the the Western community will always find ways to divide us. They will find ways to find people who will enable the um, the apathy that the Western world has in, in recognizing our history. And I think in a way, and I just want to end it by contrasting it to, for example, the Jewish community. I think the Jewish community are much better at saying, actually, as a Jewish population, whether you're in Israel, in Europe, in America, in Australia, in New Zealand, 
we've all suffered a particular part of history which we all share. We are all going to speak from the same hymn. I think when it comes to issues of anti-Semitism, whether a Jewish person is in the UK, in Israel, in America, in Australia, they've got a similar understanding. It allows them as a population of people to actually get action when things are you know, are being done onto them. Whereas we, as a black community, we don't have that kind of communality when it comes to our history. So you've got certain people who are going to tap dance for Prince William and and Kate Middleton. And then you've got Jamaicans who are going to be quite like, no, we're not having this. And then that disparity in our approach is, I think, what also contributes to our history never being taken seriously. That's um, what I wanted to contribute. I think we just... Thank you. Adrian, Adrian, sorry, can I jump in here? Because there's a lot that's said just now that's completely wrong. First of all, Bahamas, Jamaica is one island. The Bahamas is not. The Bahamas is a series of islands. And you have to understand where they went is to a place called Nassau. Nassau is full of dirty money. Nassau is full of loads. It's a tax haven, basically, for a lot of people. So, of course, the attitude in Nassau is going to be very different. It's even going to be very different from the other Bahamian um, islands. Obviously, as well, when they saw what happened in Jamaica, do not um, underestimate how much... Uh, those people would have been clamped down on. You're speaking about one protest that you saw that was um, broken up or disbanded before, but there were plenty of others. The police were not... I mean, Kate and William were embarrassed wherever they went. Um, Also, there's there's this, this myth that the black community is so divided and everybody else is not. You mentioned the Jewish community. Go and speak to a room full of Jewish people about... um. Palestine and Israel. And you have to see what's happening in the Labour Party right now with how many left-wing Jews are being put out of the Labour Party because they have a different view. So to think that the Jewish community is monolithic and all these other communities are monolithic and black people are fighting amongst each other, it's kind of, it's anti-black in itself to even think that because that's not actually the truth. There's all different countries, all different cultures. There were different things done to us in different places. So I I, I really kind of don't like to hear that kind of thing because it just makes us sound like we're these primitive people and we're all fighting each other and all of that stuff. You've got to also look at, you know, the difference with America. Look how much money was flooded. Look how their communities were flooded with drugs, you know, um, to absolutely destroy them from the inside out. We've got so many different things. I had to learn myself the other day when we were talking about skin bleaching, just how much advertising is over there in in African countries to make these people want to bleach their skin and do so much damage to themselves. So I think we have to be very, very careful before we go down that road and we speak like that, because that's not true. Okay, Uh, uh, Abby, your line's a little bit scratchy, but I think we've... uh... Heard your point, and it, it's a good one. Uh, let's bring in Maria. Hello, Maria. You're right. Go on, Maria. Uh, just uh, click the microphone on. Hey, hello. Hi. How are you? Um, Hi. Sorry. Yeah, welcome. Outside, right. so, I, um, so I, I have a question. I, uh, I will have to say that I am not um, an African, so I don't understand uh, everything, and I would like to hear uh, your opinions about it more than probably my own views. But um, well. Um, my background is European, and I, as uh, many of you are aware right now, there is a war in Europe. And if you were to put um, all the white people in one basket and call it a white community, you would realize that, well, there are different interests in that community, different history, um, different um, 
grievances and and um, it would be very difficult to say okay well even though it is something that is being attempted in North America well you are white so there is one sort of uh, card that describes you and I would assume that the same thing is about the black community like my previous speaker uh, was saying that um, there is a distinct and a different uh, needs and history between probably North African and South African and Central African and um, and um, their situation um, is not described by just uh, one word, black community. And um, that's one thing. Another thing is when it comes to reparations, is what are the grounds for reparations? Because um, again, uh, my background is Polish, so Polish didn't have any black African slaves. We were enslaved by Russians and Germans throughout our history. And um, but I understand in in law you have to be um, you you as a person have to prove that you um, you were um, um, you 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 are worse off right now um, than you would have been um, otherwise. And um, that could be difficult to prove for um, African American that live in United States, for example, because uh, economically, um, I am not talking about the ancestors, but current people who are asking for compensation, um, they can't say the same thing as the Jewish people are saying that you know my houses, everything got destroyed. They're, they're, current situation is economically way better than if they stayed in Africa. Although, and I'm not talking about human suffering ma, 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 and all ma, ma, those things. And I know that this is a very contentious statement. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, Maria... I'm, no, I'm, it's a I'm, racist statement. It's a racist statement. Thank you very much. Why is how, it? How can you say that African-Americans are living better than they would live in Africa? You don't know what would have happened. Economically. No, precisely. No, actually, African-Americans a lot of them live in poverty for your information yeah, but a lot uh, of them Ma maria 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 she's maria, being racist maria. adrian i'm sorry i'm just saying because maria, I, I think maria. it's racist like the, um, the migration from africa maria you've asked you are racist question. maria you are uh, racist look at how many black people have gone down other hold on a second please i just want to say maria's asked the question maria could you do other the respect of listening to her answer. Uh, Ava, please explain why you believe that Maria's racist, please. She just mentioned, you're trying to say black people are better off and you're saying we did not suffer. Um, and you you know, oh, you're in America now. Shut up, Maria, please. I'm sorry, I'm not gonna converse like this with you. At the end of the day, you're talking about a community, an African-American community who have suffered not just from being brought over as slaves. They also had to live under Jim Crow, okay? You have to look at the prison, the school to prison, the school to prison pipeline for black people in America. Also look at the fact that Americans, like I said earlier, the, the police force was actually started to catch runaway slaves. They are now gunning down um, black people with impunity. You have no idea what it is like to be an African-American. So for you to sit there from Poland and speak like that or from a Polish background and tell us the descendants of slaves who are sitting here now and even criminalized for the hair that grows from our heads, told that our hair is unprofessional and it's unkempt and the way our children are criminalized from young 
and thrown out of schools in Britain. You need to see the expulsion rate. You need to see the stop and search rate. Don't tell black people what our lives are like and how good we have it. How dare you? Uh, and as someone who lives in America, let me just also add, everything that you said, Ava, is correct. Um, but also as someone living in America, you know, you have to you have to look at what's happening here in America. And so uh, comparatively, we have been um, shat upon um, in this country and have continued to be so um, comparatively. Uh, when programs were put in place that um, advanced uh, people who came from Poland and from other countries, uh, immigrants and so forth, <clears throat> even those who were here, after, you know, the English and all of that, uh, lands were given to them. And so that was a, a financial basis on which families could build. Uh, when programs were put into place after World War II, uh, I know that Poland was subsumed into the Soviet uh, sphere. But when programs were put into place after World War II, those were really not available to African-Americans. Very little, very little. And so when homes were um, being purchased for little and nothing because of uh, after World War II, the soldiers coming back and all of that, blacks were not allowed to have that. Whenever blacks have poked their noses out and uh, have done well in areas, uh, what happens is that their their communities are either run through eventually by highways or uh, angry whites have gone in. You, you have Greenwood, uh, many, many examples of communities that have just been raised to the ground, Black Wall Street, simply because whites looked upon that and said, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so the pathology, the pathologization of black people is the direct result of whites always imposing upon us uh, 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 limitations and so forth. Jim Crow was no small thing. Um, uh, being mowed down all the time simply because we're black, uh, uh, the rape and pillage. Listen, I also want to say this. The basis of her question is something that is often at the back of the minds of many white people. And um, we need to look at it as, an, uh, as a good thing that she brought that up in the sense that many people have that perspective that we have benefited because of the civilizing effect of the British um, and, the, and then the colonies, America, and so on and so forth. That is not the case. We have no idea what would have happened in Africa had we not been uh, taken off of our lands, had Africa not been colonized. Ukraine. We uh, Let me just say this one last thing. There are a lot of black people who are very, um, listen, we, we believe that Putin should not invade Ukraine. But there is a lot of changed opinion based on what we saw in terms of how blacks were treated as people were trying to escape that initially. It was a racist statement, and Ava's absolutely right. I'm mute. Thank you. Can I, Adrian, can I just quickly add very quickly? Yeah, uh, go on. A person, a black Brit living in San Francisco to back up Ava and the last speaker. I don't, they don't think, I don't really think they need backing up because everything they say is absolutely 100%. The, the last speaker spoke about this, but I want to give names to it specifically. There was the Homestead Act. There was a Marshall Plan that helped all of white Europe and, and there was the, uh, the New Deal and the GI Bill. All of those things advanced white Americans and black people didn't get a thing. While you had white people building wealth on farmland that they were given, 
all post uh, World War II and everything else. And they all advanced on our backs. And that's something that must be said and it must be uh, put forth very clearly here. The Homestead Act and the, the, Marshall, the Marshall Plan, which helped reconstruct and help Europe, white Europe after World War II, all that got built up. And that was something that the U.S. government did. And it never gave us anything. And as Patrick talked about earlier, where's our 40 acres and a mule? So uh, people will come in and make these ignorant comments. And Adrian, uh, I think we've got a few racist trolls uh, coming around uh, talking all this nonsense designed for us to get off track. Um, and the last well, I'll, I'll tell you what, Omar, the, 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 uh, I mean, the racism is abhorrent and is something that I've clamped down on pretty swiftly. Right. But what, in addition to that, what galled me was Maria having asked a question, simply being unwilling to listen to the answer. Racism is always wrong. So is discourtesy and not being polite. And if you use this space with me as host, even if you ask a question which people find, as in this instance, quite rightly objectionable, at least have the common decency to listen to the answer, which is what Maria wouldn't do. So I will be firm and clear on that. I'm very happy that we can have debates and debates sometimes perhaps where people will become a little bit angry, maybe, as I think Ava was entirely entitled to. But if you ask a question, at least at least do the person the courtesy of listening to what they have to say. Really appreciate that, Omar. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thanks again for having, giving me the opportunity. They had no intention of listening. She she jetted out of the room. And the other person that talked <laughs> that off that he talked... Let's hear from Denise so, on Byline Radio. Hi, Denise. You. It's been very patient. Hi, Denise. Welcome along. Oh, hello and good evening to everyone. There's quite a few people in this space that I know, so not know, but I've seen before and heard before. So I just wanted to acknowledge their presence as well as their contributions. But one of the things that I wanted to touch on in relation to the reparations question was primarily how you move the, the debate forward and how you get people in that space. And I feel like, um, I think Ava made a point a little, you know, several points ago where she said there's willful ignorance about the way in which the conversation is discussed. So when the previous contributor came on, what she sought to do was to liken the experience of what happens in Poland to what happened to the the African community and the, throughout the slave trade. And I feel that that's what the reparations debate has almost been diluted into. So recently you had um, a very well-known comedian in America making a joke that the English needed to receive reparations from the Normans because the conversation now is about if something happened in the past to you, why should you be paid for it? And therefore, I think what we as advocates of reparations need to do when we're in spaces is we need to somehow dismantle that element of the conversation, which primarily says it's not just about an injustice of the past. It's also about the continued beneficiaries of that wealth and the sustained and systemic inequality it helps to create. And I just wanted to bring that to the fore because I feel like the reparations conversation in itself is being 
I wouldn't say hijacked, but it's being diluted because it's similar kind of conversation about greater awareness of social injustice. It's been diluted into wokeness. So when you hear mainstream commentators talking about injustice, they inver- you, you often hear, well, this is a woke protest as a way of knocking the question off the table and the same with the reparations well why don't i get reparations because the romans invaded and what we as advocates have to do is we have to show that that question in itself has no validity in the debate but at the same time that the experience of africans and the diaspora is distinctly different so that was the first point i wanted to make yeah and, and denise you you're forgiven by the way for not having to listen to every uh, minute of this we've been on air for just over two hours now but right at the start i mentioned the the systemic inequality of the united kingdom but also it's been touched on by other contributors of the united states whether it's specific incidents like the windrush scandal where people who've lived and worked and contributed in britain for many years are then found to have some uncertain immigration status and are kicked out of the country that has been the their home for the majority of their lives whether you're looking at outcomes relating to mental health whether you're looking at, at outcomes in terms of prison sentences and time spent in prison after you've been convicted and so on. There is no question to anybody I would suggest who has looked at this objectively that there is something called systemic racism, that there is institutional racism in our Western societies. And to deny that is to flatly deny the evidence that's in front of your own eyes. I think that the reason, um, Adrian, is that people find the whole... um, um, admitting that you know admitting that there there is a continued benefit to the wider society from all of the slave trade is because they don't always want to admit that they benefit from it and that's one of the reasons why I think you have the debate couched in the way it is so when you hear people talking about white privilege, they would say something along the lines of, well, you have a white person cleaning the streets in Burnley. Why does that person have white privilege? And I think it's like um, Ava said previously, it's about the willful ignorance and the willful sense of, I don't want to face anything that, you know, is being laid at my door or in this conversation so you have it distilled down to you know it's almost it's so diluted and so simplified that's the reason why i mean like in this debate here you have a chance or not you but the speakers have a chance to air their views they can you know talk about something there's a rebuttal but there's space but in other forums you might have two minutes or you might have you know, you've called into a show or you, you want to contribute on a, on, a, on a radio or a television station. You've got a very short time. So I think what we have to do as advocates, not just, you know, if you're on a media platform, but anywhere, is to have some really very quick, strong arguments. And people are very, you know, they're, they're much, you can, if you can dilute, dilute it and show them where their argument has no merit, that can be sometimes a, a good way to, to, to distill some of what I would see is, you know, it's it, in itself, the whole conversation is racist if you're trying to compare what happened to the, the Polish to the African, because it's to me that it's not sharing like with like. So, I mean, that, that was the point I wanted to make on the reparations point. But on the royal visit point, I was... Can I just say on that, Denise? I mean... Oh, yeah. I, I would just say, I mean... Clearly, the Polish people, and I'm not talking about Maria now, 
and, and her particular comment, the Polish people have, in historical terms, been subjected to some terrible, terrible injustices. And personally, what I don't like is the idea of pitting one person's subjugation and injustice against another's. Polish people mm -hmm. have been very badly served uh, in, in pre-Nazi times, but then by the Nazis and then subsequently by the, the, the Russian communists. They, they, they've had a terrible time of it for much of the recent couple of hundred years of history. That, that, that's undeniable and that is a fact. Then there is the fact of the enslavement of African people. These things should not, in my view, be pitted against each other as though they're in some way comparable or that they're in some way in competition with each other. Sadly, terrible things have happened to different people in history. What we're talking about in this debate is specifically about the enslavement of African people and whether that mm. should Polish people are also beating African people who are trying to get out of Ukraine right now. So whatever they've had happen to them is not stopping their anti-blackness. We need no, to make that very clear. No, but as you know, no, not all Polish people. You know that we have to bear that in mind too, don't we? Um, you know, there may be Polish people not who are all, racist. But there was, if, if there was enough outcry about it, the the people who are doing it wouldn't be able to do it. It's so we need to make that very very clear. Uh, let's bring uh, Amma into the conversation. Hello, Amma. Welcome to Byline Radio. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, sorry that the person who asked the initial question isn't there. And I know it's been addressed, but I did want to make two points about it. Um, and maybe some other people in here are thinking the same thing. So I do think the idea that people who are enslaved are better off is something that is not only lurking in the minds of white people, but I've, I've heard people say it like Jesse Lee Peterson. So it's in the mind of black people. Um, and so I think this fundamental misunderstanding is that people think that the condition that is on the continent today um, would have been what it is. I think there's some sort of linear history in which, you know, uh, the Democrats the Central African Republic would have a per capita GDP of less than a thousand dollars um, if, you know, nothing happened, if Europeans had not engaged in the transatlantic slave trade. And so if you assume that, which is quite inaccurate, then yes, it might, it does seem that, you know, people living in America um, with much higher incomes um, are better off. And so I think the way we have to have this conversation is to see the link between those who were captured, so the 12 plus million people who were captured and the impact that that had on the centuries long underdevelopment of the continent um, by the process of removing what was predominantly um, young men in their prime, two thirds of the slaves were young men in their prime. Um, who would have radically shift changed that economy. On top of that, um, what this underdevelopment did was create um, the opportunity for the colonial system, which furthered um, the extraction. So the initial extraction was the extraction of humans and labor, which they used to industrialize. And once they were sort of militarily, economically way ahead because of that process, they were able um, 
to basically conquer everything outside of, you know, a couple of places. If you think about, you know, how does a little country like Belgium um, get to uh, take over a massive body of land like the Democratic Republic of Congo? It's because of that um, underdevelopment that occurred as a result of this process. I remember reading this journal article a couple of years ago about, you know, the quality of iron smelting between like West African and, you know, like in their European counterparts in the 16th century. And what we see here is in terms of development, um, something that is closer to parity, um, which is lost in that period of time. Um, Another thing that I think people should consider is whether or not you think somebody might be better off is actually irrelevant to the question of um, whether somebody has been wrong. So let's say you kidnap a child and you raise that child in wealth and luxury. Um, you still kidnapped a child and so you are still accountable um, as the perpetrator of that crime. Um, even if, or you would be, and I'm not saying you know people who did it today are, are directly accountable. All I'm trying to point out is that even if you could argue that somebody's conditions are better, it would not undermine the initial, you know, wrongness of the act that happened, um, even if subsequently they were better off. But, you know, yeah. of course, everybody well, got I, 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 Anna, I guess, in, I'm a and I guess from the United States, but we have a phrase we hear in the UK, you may be familiar with it, and it, it, it's it's whataboutery. You know, what about the idea that people might be better off? Yeah, frankly, who cares? You know, right. We, we, if we don't start from the absolute starting point that slavery, the enslavement of other people is wrong, full stop, then we're not in the right page, are we? We're not having the right discussion. Right, absolutely. Yeah. And that was all I needed, wanted to say. So thank you very much for your time. Yeah, great to speak to you. Thank you, Emma. Uh, Alex Renton, the author of Blood Legacy, is still with us, been with us for a fair amount of time. And Alex, uh, I, I know you've uh, requested to join the conversation again. Go on, where, where, where do you come in on this? What, what I find um, sort of concerning in, in some of these debates, um, particularly comparing uh, enslavement in different societies at different times around the world, is, is that we have to, you know, particularly when people bring up uh, what, what they like to call modern slavery, uh, we have to see that, the, that what uh, European countries did to the Africans in shipping them across the Atlantic was a, a unique event. And, and comparing it with trafficking people today is, is wrong, is, is, a, is, a, is actually is not, not an honest comparison because uh, this was a, a trade and, and then a, a use of enslaved African people on the plantations that was legal, that was done by a country at the beginnings of democracy. Uh, and and it was crucially a, a situation where people had no more rights than did the farm animals on those plantations. And that's clear from reading the papers that of my, my ancestors' uh, accounts of what they were doing in Jamaica. And, and so to compare it to other forms of slave, uh, of, of enslavement that go on in the world is is wrong and, and, and is used by some people also to, to make us discount the significance of it. Uh, Bay Grills is with us. Hello, Bay Grills. Welcome to Byline Radio. Mate, you're the first person that's actually said that correctly the first time. Congratulations. Do we get a prize? <laughs> um, I will. I will dwell on it, and I will get back to you. As a matter of fact, put together a short list. Let me know for you. All right. 
Um, I'm not going to take up too much of your time because really and truly, um, Auntie um, Ava has been spot on as per usual. Hi, Auntie. I see you there. Um, I really just wanted to kind of address the main crux of what annoys the utter piss out of me about people who think that a reparations argument is ludicrous and that because they did not materially benefit from slavery, they can't find a legacy where their family members have been slave owners or something like that. Their ancestors didn't materially benefit from it in terms that they're not sitting on a ton of wealth, material wealth right now. I want people to put paid to that argument that it is absolute bunk because there are realistic, tangible, non-material ways in which you benefit from that legacy. And one of them is your patriotism. You can't talk about how great America is. And I'm a black Briton who's currently based in Philadelphia, by the way. And you can't talk about putting the great back in Great Britain like all of these ridiculous parties over the years have tried to do uh, the National Front. BNP, uh, UKIP recently, just all sorts of different people. Your patriotism is based exclusively on the history of conquest of that nation. And that's like one of the things. So if you're somebody who feels like you didn't benefit tangibly, where did your sense, your false sense of superiority stem from? Do you know your history enough to the point where you can actually put distance, considerable objective distance between that and the sordid legacy of the nation that you love so much? And that is something that I really want people individually to challenge. Collectively, that I think might be a bit tricky. But individually, it costs you nothing to look in the mirror and to look at the things in which you believe and just add just a basic amount of critical analysis to the reasons why you believe what it is. Like, at the end of the day, we need to get away from thinking that just because somebody got a payout or a bailout like the UK did and only just finished paying off in 2015, mind, that was seven years ago now? Like I, I want people to understand that 20, the equivalent of 20 billion pounds was something that took centuries to pay off. And none of that came to me, my family members, my ancestors, none of us who are black and British, none of us in the diaspora have seen a penny for the labor that made your nations great. And that is important to note. It's a, it's a very minor thing in terms of the debate that we're having, but uh, that's never stopped me before, Bay Grills. But <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird thing that as an England football fan, now I'm an England football fan because right. I, I love football, soccer, um, and, you know, that's <laughs> my game. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I was born and raised in England, so mm -hmm. to me it's the natural thing. But I'm, I'm troubled by many aspects of supporting the England football team. One of them... And as I said, this may sound minor, but bear in mind, this team is England and that they're a very multiracial, multicultural team. Gareth Southgate mm. completely gets, uh, to me, what living in England in 2022 is all about. But you still, there was a, a friendly game against Switzerland, which England won 2-1 yesterday. And the supporters, as they have done all the time that I've been following England, occasionally burst into rounds of singing a song Rule Britannia. Now, two, two, two things about that. One is, it's not even an England song. That's it's a not. British song. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you're singing about a different thing. England, of course, is part of Britain, but it's not an England song. It's not an English song. And people who are Scottish 
or Welsh or who support Northern Ireland. Actually, actually, maybe the Northern Ireland people would. But the people who are Scottish and Welsh, but who are also British, mm. would have the dream of singing Royal Britannia. And, and then, of course, you have, here we are in 2022. Mm-hmm. What? You're singing what? Royal Britannia. <laughs> Run that by <laughs> me again. Well, exactly. I love a bit of the football, me. I'm, I'm, one, I'm one of these, uh, well, seven uh, co-hosts and the co-producer of a, a podcast called The Banter Pub FC, which is basically a bunch of black people who love football. And we do not shy away from the lens of looking at the game that we love so much um, and what it means to us as black people. Because, again, this is the reason why going back to what um, Omar and uh, Auntie and uh, everybody who's spoken before me has said, the comparisons that people are making here, they're false equivalency, right? You know, we can't actually, we can't actually like take away from the fact that when we hear English people singing Rue Britannia, we know what that means. So we don't all of a sudden get to turn around and act as if we're not responsible for, or we have no complicity in the very systems, the very institutions that have made these historic injustices possible and that's the thing that i need people who are so quick to put distance between themselves and the whole reparations argument because they're trying to make it all about themselves as if they're going to be coming out of pocket for what it is my ancestors were put through by their ancestors and that's not how this works so all in all please white people while i love you get over yourselves please (laughs) thank you uh, I'm going to add a final speaker now. This is uh, Mary Ama. Hello, Mary. Welcome to Byline Radio. You have the honour of being the final speaker on this space today. So use it wisely. How are you doing? You're right. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Um, I just want to say that that as a as a Nigerian, I watch like films made about the slave trade and stuff like that. And that has stayed with me and plays made about it. I schooled in Nigeria before I came to England to school. So I know about the slave trade and how it worked and stuff like that. So what I'm trying to say is, no matter what the English people say, that they recognize the slave trade was bad and stuff like that, they're still today, they still control um, people in Africa and we still owe them money. So, so um, that's what I want to say. Okay, Mary, thank you so much for joining Byline Radio. Listen, I'm conscious that there's a lot of people who've wanted to have a chat with me. Uh, we've been going for nearly two and a half hours. I don't want to strain your patience. I'm going to draw a close for now, but I'm really going to say thank you so much to the people who've taken the time and effort to just listen to this, but particularly to Ava Vidal, who's been a fantastic contributor, to Omar Moore, to Alex Renton, to Patrick Vernon, who was on a little bit uh, a little bit earlier on, to Bay Grills, who we just heard from, and everybody who's taken the time to request a microphone. If I haven't been able to get to you, and a number of people are direct messaging me and saying, let me on, let me on, I'm really sorry. We just have genuinely been overwhelmed. Did I say thank you to Alex Renton as well, if I didn't? Thank you, Alex, as well. You did, thanks. I did, thank you. So <laughs> thank you, everybody. You're getting two thanks. Thank you, everyone, anyway. Mm. But listen, it's been fantastic, and we will continue this debate. Uh, two things to me that have emerged from this discussion. One is that, 
and and uh, one listener mentioned how if you go onto other mainstream radio phone-ins you're constrained by time and space that's not the issue or at least not to the same degree when you have these kind of conversations i really do believe this is a revolution in radio and this is going to change the way that radio is you don't need to worry about them you don't need to bother about them you can talk on a space like this and we will give you here on byline radio the room to speak and to be heard that's really really important i forget what the other thing was i was going to say but it doesn't really matter but other than to say thank you so much and if you want to support what we do on byline radio or the listen again on the byline times podcast please consider taking out a subscription to the byline times you get more information at bylinetimes.com that's at bylinetimes.com. We'll be back again soon. Do follow at Byline Radio to find out when we'll be live again. But thank you so much, everyone. Speak to you all soon. Cheers now. Ta-da.